This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. So Dr. Amy Brady is the deputy publisher of Guernica Magazine and the editor-in-chief of the Chicago Review of Books. I first encountered her through her monthly column, Burning Worlds. Burning Worlds explores the nexus of art, culture, and the climate crisis with a focus on contemporary fiction. Dr. Brady's work has appeared in Slate, the Los Angeles Times, the New Republic, the Village Voice, the Dallas Morning News, Pacific Standard, McSweeney's, Lit Hub, and other places. She's also the co-editor of the anthology House on Fire, Dispatches from a Climate-Changed World, that's coming from Catapult this year, right? Uh, in 2022. It got bumped. Okay, 2022. Yeah, and congratulations on that. Thank you. I'm very excited. So I started out with your bio, uh, but I know that we're more than just our, our work. So what else would you like folks to know about you? Oh, well, I guess um, it might be useful to know that I've been... Uh, an environmentalist my entire life. I proudly started the environmental club at the Topeka West High School in Topeka, Kansas, back in the late 90s. Uh, And, you know, have followed the kind of the penetration into the public consciousness of climate change, you know, really since um, the early 2000s. And have just been uh, for a while, saddened, but recently uh, more energized by the fact that we're starting to see climate change in front page headlines uh, in major newspapers. Um, it's, of course, frustrating that it took uh, incredibly catastrophic climate impacts here in the United States for that to happen, but at least it's finally starting to happen. Um, and uh, yeah, and you know, I also have a background in literature. And so, you know, one of the questions that I asked myself when I was studying um, in my doctoral program was just how does literature respond to the current political moment of our time and can it have an impact on how readers think about those political concerns? And so I guess eventually it was inevitable that my concerns about the environment and climate change and the my questions about the political nature of literature would eventually merge. Uh, and it uh, manifested into Burning Worlds, which you described so nicely. Thank you. Yeah. So, okay, so just set some definitions for our readers. What is climate fiction? And it's known by its short cli-fi. Um, but what is climate fiction? Well, I think to understand what climate fiction is today, it helps to look back in time. Around the 1960s, um, largely because of the work of the British sci-fi writer uh, J.G. Ballard, we started to see climate change written about in fictional narratives. Um, It was with the publication of Ballard's The Burning World and The Drowned World, um, both published in 1962 and 1964, I believe. We started to see how fictional writers were imagining a climate change future that was brought about because human activity. And so Ballard ended up inspiring an entire generation of science fiction writers. Um, You know, everyone from Margaret Atwood to Octavia Butler, um, T.C. Boyle, who isn't necessarily a sci-fi writer, but definitely verges into speculative fiction, Um, you know, as well as uh, Kim Stanley Robinson and many, many others. And so Cli-Fi has its roots really in science fiction. 
And then around 2010, something really interesting happened. We started seeing writers who are publishing in all types of genres and styles, including what some people call literary fiction, or what I might call realist fiction, because personally, I think science fiction is literary. Um, but as well as in, <laughs> you know, as well as in fantasy, uh, even romance, people who are writing in all kinds of genres also started to incorporate um, themes of climate change and how it's impacting the world in which we live into their work. And um, taken together, uh, it's called climate fiction. Now, that it's really interesting, though, to call it a genre, because <laughs> when so many people are writing about climate change, it becomes a little bit less of a genre and more of just a generation of writers responding to the you know, world in times that, you know, that they live in. And so I think only time will tell if climate fiction is a bona fide genre. But right now, it still feels that way. You know, that that was a question I was going to I was going to bring up later is, is this still a, a genre? Because as, as you've pointed out in, in um, some writing and some interviews that you've done elsewhere, the climate crisis is starting to show up in everything from you know, romance novels to uh, even literary fiction. It's starting to show up in a bunch of different places. And so, yeah, like, is it, you know, I guess then the question becomes, how do you define a genre or not? Yeah. Um, you know, genres often tend to be formed in hindsight. And they are also always argued over their practitioners, as well as the scholars and fans who study and read them. You know, I mean, I think if you ask three different people, uh, if you ask 300 different people what the definition of science fiction is, you're going to get 300 different answers. And a lot, you know, I mean, in a lot of their answers, there's going to be aspects of them that have overlap for sure. Um, you know, I mean, there are definite bonafide sci-fi tropes that we can identify. But, um, but you know, the, the boundaries are a little blurry. And, you know, with the rise of what a lot of people are now calling speculative fiction, then that what we once thought of as a distinct boundary between science fiction, literary fiction, and even fantasy is becoming blurry. So, um, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I see the the value in having a category or a genre um, because it does give somebody a reference point. But it also, I think it unnecessarily boxes writers or a work of fiction in that, you know, lends it a bunch of connotations that it doesn't necessarily deserve. Right. That makes sense. And I think about earlier in the 20th century with, uh, be it World War One or World War Two or even, you know, the rise of modernism, things like that, where the, um, those, those, um, things that happened in the real world didn't necessarily stay within a, a genre of just war novels or something like that. They, they permeated the society because that was the experience of the society. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right in the sense that it did permeate all aspects of society. But the interesting thing is, is that if you ask some literary scholars, they will tell you there is such a thing as World War One literature or war literature in, in general. And that's just the funny thing about genres is that um, 
you know, the, the boundaries are so malleable and they're also kind of arbitrary and at the discretion of the person who's describing them. Um, you know, and so I, I mean, and I will say this, and this is maybe one of the more crasser interpretations of genre, but they also help to sell books. When you walk into a bookstore, for example, then, you know, you'll notice that it's, they're not just separated by fiction or nonfiction. They're separated by things like self-help, historical, you know, science fiction. Uh, they usually have something called literature or contemporary fiction. Um, you know, genre helps people to know which shelf to go to to buy a book, even if the label that's on the shelf doesn't describe exactly what's in the book itself. Yeah, which which of course makes sense. So so within um, climate fiction, um, I you know I've been reading as much as I can the past ten years within climate fiction, and I noticed that there's you know even within there there's different types of books. There's these kind of like dark, heavy, um, futuristic, dystopian things like um, like American War or um, Far North by Marcel Thoreau. Um, after the flood by Cassandra Montag, or or anything by um, Paolo Bacigalupi, um, and then there's the books that are more set contemporary, where there's a story, and climate change is kind of in almost a little bit in the background. And I'm thinking of, um, you know, Oval by Elvia Wilk, or um, um, maybe I would also think about Weather. And the children's Bible, although the, both of those, the um, the climate change plays a more significant role, um, but it's still it's still uh, you know more in the here and now and not in the far future. So there's these different levels. Yeah, there are different approaches to um, to the same to the same problem, right? Which is how do you depict climate change in narrative form? Because I mean, and, and it's it's not an easy thing to answer, because climate change is literally planetary in size. It's an enormous phenomenon that has many many drivers that are also enormous. Um, you know, I mean, it's uh, you know, capitalism is a driver. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I never really know the the political makeup of the the audience I'm speaking with, but. Um, you know, if, if folks Google me, they will see that I also believe that, you know, racism and xenophobia are drivers of climate change, um, you know. And so you when you and these are not problems that we can just solve, you know, with an, a single act of policy or um, by throwing money at it. Right. It's, it's a very complicated, thorny problem. And so how do you take something that large and that enormous and that touches so many people on so many different levels and give it a narrative shape that has a beginning, a middle, and an end in 300 pages or less? It's really hard. So, yeah. And so, and then on top of everything else, right, climate change itself, um, it's, it's, it's not something that has an obvious villain. I mean, sure, there are definitely people who are more at fault than others. I mean, I'm going to point fingers at the fossil fuel industries and any, you know, political, you know, legislatures who continue to thwart climate action <laughs> in the United States. I'm looking at you, GOP. Um, 
but you know, but it's not, these aren't villains that a hero can stop with a gun or a magic wand. Right. And so again, like, how do you depict this? And so writers take all different types of approaches. Um, the ones that you mentioned, uh, you look at a kind of a dystopian future and imagine that climate change has already catastrophically altered the world as we know it. And so the consequences of climate change become very apparent. And then the story kind of becomes um, how do the remaining civilization uh, or civilizations, how do they navigate those changes? Um, and it's very dark and it's very scary. Uh, but the other writers that you you mentioned, the ones that are setting their stories in the present, um, in the here and now, um, you know, it's more about kind of discovering that climate change is a thing. Um, you know, Lydia Millet's A Children's Bible is a fantastic novel that, um, you know, is about a group of families. They're all friends. They're on vacation on a coast when a hurricane hits and it destroys the home that they're staying in. And so now they're suddenly having to wrestle with the fact that, um, you know, they're in immediate danger, but also that they can't just go about life as they they knew it. You know, they actually have to think about what um, the next 10 years or more is going to look like as they figure out you know, how to live in a world that is throwing storms of that size at them. And um, it's a very different thing. Yeah. And one of the things I thought was interesting in that book, um, I, I'm not sure if this was necessarily one of the messages of the book, but what I got out of it was the the adults um, stumble their way through. Um, they they never really seem to necessarily take charge. And if they do, they seem to constantly question themselves. They have uh, various motivations that are not necessarily um, the same motivations as the children. And I think that that it, it really, in a lot of ways, kind of separates, separates a lot of what we're seeing now with um, younger generations, you know, say the, the 30 and below or, or even younger, um, seem to have more of an imperative to deal with this, where, whereas the so so-called adults that are in charge in elected positions or sitting on board of directors of large companies can't seem to figure out what to do or don't want to. Yeah, I think that's a great message to take away from that book. Um, and you know, I would go as far as to say, I mean, I I don't know this for sure, but I would imagine that is a message that you know that the author Lydia Millet wanted you to take away. You know, the divide between the adults and the children in that book and their reactions to climate change is so stark. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, the the adults weren't even just muddling through. They just stopped muddling. They were frozen. They were just apathetic. They were trying to, you know, kind of dull the edges of the the problem by, you know, with drinking and drugs and you know, and and just not wanting to take charge and figure out how to move forward. And so the children who are looking at the parents, like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, they suddenly step into the roles of strategists and caretakers and, you know, budget makers, and they become these resourceful, you know, little, little 
powerful engines who keep everyone alive and ultimately figure out how to get out of their, you know, immediate, uh, immediate danger. Um, and I, I think that is just a beautiful parable of what is happening right now. And, you know, I mean, it is young people who established the climate marches and who, you know, have, you know, climate Fridays who are among the most vocal, um, you know, opponents of fossil fuel use. And it's, and it's young people who formed the Sunrise Movement who have put pressure on, you know, the Democratic Party here in the United States to, um, you know, put into act the Green New Deal. So, um, yeah, I mean, young people are definitely leading the way. And that book is a beautiful demonstration of that. I, I agree. And, you know, to contrast the adults in a children's a children's Bible with an adult in uh, Weather by Jenny Offal. Um, you know, this here's this mother, um, urban mother, who's um, who, as you said, is is kind of waking up to this and realizing it, and she's having her own um, struggle with how to to deal with the climate crisis internally. She's at least, she's at least not necessarily trying to, um, you know, dull the pain with drugs and alcohol. She's, um, she's trying to figure out how to even manage this in her mind. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I, I think those two books pair together so well, because they demonstrate that you can write climate fiction about what's about what's happening right now on earth, because these are all problems that, uh, you know, anybody who's paying attention um, is going through, you know, when we look at those futuristic dystopian novels, you know, they, they're all written in the key of despair, fear, there, there's a there's a dark energy to them, right? And, and they're powerful. I mean, some of those books, American War in particular, is a beautiful book. And anyone who's interested in climate fiction, I feel should should read that maybe start there. That's such an important novel. Um, but, you know, but the Awful's book and Millet's book, uh, you know, both just emphasize that climate change is not just a planetary problem. It's also a personal one in the sense that, you know, uh, like you, Jim, I'm sure, and I know I'm going to speak for myself, um, climate change invades my thoughts all the time. You know, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, how I feel about it and what actions I can take and what I can support. Um, and, you know, and then I, I wrestle with the anger and the frustration of, of or towards people who aren't taking the same types of action or aren't doing more, specifically people with the power to enact real change, like politicians and policymakers. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just... I think that climate fiction about the present is going to become a theme uh, or a, a, a trend, I guess, that we see much more often in publishing because it is a viable way of telling a story about climate change. Yeah, I think that that whole discussion brings up a question about dystopia. And I, I kind of wrestle with this as I'm writing my book because mine's um, is very dark. And I look at it, I look at some of these dystopian climate fiction novels as like a warning of this is where things could go. But I do recognize that there could be a danger in, um, in making people feel hopeless. Yeah, 
yeah, you know, I suppose that is something certainly to consider. Um, but, you know, I, I will also say that whenever we, we, people tend to talk about climate fiction differently than any other genre. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. see people just talking about fiction in general, about how it can affect readers. Um, you know, which, which is neither, neither a, a good thing or a bad thing. It's just an interesting thing. And so something I like to just remind folks, because this is something I certainly consider as a reader of climate fiction, is that when it comes down to it, it's going to depend on, if you want someone to read your book, it's going to depend on whether that book is just interesting. And I still think there are lots of interesting things a writer can do um, with a dystopian novel. You know, I mean, it's I mean, if you think about all the books that you like to read, it's, you know, is the storytelling compelling? Are the characters interesting? Are there surprises, Um, whether in the plot or in the tone? And so I think there's absolutely room for dystopian novels still, uh, you know, in the marketplace and we'll find a readership. Well, I was just going to say that's a really interesting point I hadn't considered. I think because so many people want to look for hope and positivity in climate change that we can overcome this, that we can we can find our way through and and make the right choices to to deal with this crisis that there seems to be a fear of well, if you paint a bad picture, then people are just going to lose hope for for ho- lose hope for the future and become uh, powerless. And you're saying maybe not. I, I mean, I think I think everybody's, you know, everyone's miles may vary you know, when it comes to. Yes, right. It's individual, isn't it? Yeah, it's totally individual. I mean, you know, there there have been empirical studies done on this. And, you know, it, it does suggest that um, that anyone who reads a work of climate fiction, not anyone, but a large percentage of people who read climate fiction, you know, come away from those books thinking more about climate change and being more willing to talk about climate change, particularly with people who, um, with whom such a conversation may have been difficult. That's really intriguing to me. It is. Are you kind of referring to some of the work by Matthew Snyder Meyerson? I am. Yeah. His work is really, really compelling. You know, I'm sure he could be a, uh, a, a more nuanced advocate of his work than I can, but you know, as I understand it, you know, he, um, you know, he did an empirical survey of, I think it was at least 100 readers of climate fiction and, you know, uh, asked them how it made them think about climate change afterwards. And the study did show that, you know, while it's not going to turn a, um, you know, a climate denier into an activist, that there was some movement along that spectrum towards caring more about climate change um, among most people who picked up those books. And I thought that was really compelling because there aren't that many studies about literature in general in terms of how it, it makes us think about anything. And so to see that happening with books that talk about climate change is really fascinating to me. Um, but, you know, he's, he's done follow-up studies since that initial one. And uh, I've, I remember correctly, one was done actually um, with the author that you mentioned, um, Paulo Bacigalupi's work, uh, which is about the American Southwest, where you are calling me from right now. And, um, you know, what the studies showed there is that readers, 
they thought more about climate change afterwards, but they also came away from it thinking that it was more of an individualistic um, problem to solve, or, or put another way, that it could be solved through, through more individualistic actions than collective action, or at least they thought that's what the message of the book was. <laughs> yeah, and if that's the case then, you know, then maybe that novel isn't doing the social cultural work that we hoped that it would do. But again, that's that's people telling a writer what we want their book to do, right? <laughs> and then, instead of just letting the writer let them write their book. Right. I, I actually went to high school with uh, Paolo, and, and, I, and I am intrigued with his books because they are, and, and his short stories, really, because they are centered here in the Southwest. And I think a lot of his goal is to highlight these problems that you know, that we're going to run into with water. And dealing with water issues in the Southwest is going to be a collective thing. That is something we are going to have to do together. So I find that fascinating that that a lot of people came away with kind of an individual action sort of mindset. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's a really fascinating study. And, you know, I encourage your readers to seek out those studies firsthand if they're interested in these um, these kinds of questions. Um, But, you know, what it also does point to me, though, is that if a writer of climate fiction wants as one of their goals of their book to actually motivate readers to think and act in a way that could help mitigate climate change, then but possibly the route to doing that is to write a story that does infuse, you know, emotions of hope uh, or optimism and depicts collective action. You know, people working together to to make a difference. And in fact, when we were already seeing novels like that, um, you know, I think Lydia Millet's book, who we, we just talked about, it certainly shows that the way that the children came together to um, to solve a problem. Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, novels certainly do that. Um, you know, New York 2140. Um, I don't want to give too much away because I think everyone should read that book because it's fantastic. But, um, you know, it does depict the power of collective action. Speaking of Kim Stanley Robinson, um, if we can just stick with him for a minute, um, you know, I like just in the past, I haven't been, you know, the biggest fan of his. I really appreciate hearing interviews with him because he's obviously so brilliant, but I was never really taken by any of his books so much until this one that he published late last year, which is The Ministry for the Future. And I kind of found that book mind-blowing. You know, did, did he do something fresh here, in a way? I feel like he did. Um, you know, in, in some ways, he's drawing on uh, a history of science fiction, of what some readers might call hard science fiction, to look at not just the science of the societies that they depict, but also the economic and political structures of those societies. And he brought that um, that history into the present and very near future. I mean, I think the book opens in like, what, 2024 or 2025, something yeah, like that. Right. It's, it's just a couple of years from now. Yeah, it's just it's a handful of years from now. And, you know, talks about that or not the talks about it's a novel it you know depicts the story of how you know the the world eventually built a sustainable and just society and that we did it by putting into place um you know an economic and political structure 
that would allow it to come about. And the novel is really about how that was done and just what a messy and dangerous and, you know, complex um, process it it was. Um, and, and yeah, and that felt, I mean, that felt very new to kind of marry those techniques of science fiction um, with issues of climate change. And then instead of setting it in the distant future or on a different planet, to apply it to what's happening uh, here on Earth in right now. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And one of the things that I, you know, again, I found the book mind-blowing, but one of the things, one of the reasons I found it mind-blowing was he, he kind of lays out a map. He lays out a map that we can follow, and he doesn't, you know, as you said, it's messy, it's dirty, it's sometimes violent, um, uh, there's a lot of problems involved, but, um, so he doesn't, so he doesn't, um, he doesn't try to, to shield us from the difficulty of the decisions that we need to make, but it's, but it is actually a roadmap, and it opens some doors, um, you know, as, as far as a thought experiment to, um, to things that we could actually try. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And what's also so interesting about that is that, you know, if I'm, I'm sure you probably have heard in some of the interviews that he's given, you know, Stan is a researcher, he's a thinker, and all of these ideas that he put in that book are based on things that people have already written about and have thought about. And he was just like, well, what if we actually take these ideas you know, bring them to their most logical conclusion and actually put them into action. And so, you know, he, he basically kind of did the, the, the work of, uh, gosh, I don't, I mean, I don't even know what to call him. He's not, he's not a prophet because we're not, we don't know that this is going to happen. He's kind of like a, I don't know, a Pied Piper maybe, you know, of just like, right, kind may, of yeah, maybe saying, so. like, here's the trail, like follow me and I will lead you to where you want to go. One of the other things that I found pretty interesting in uh, his book, The Ministry for the Future, is that he kind of opened the door on this um, literary-wise. I want to be really careful what I say here because he d he's not advocating terrorism, right? But he opens the door for this, um, this possibility of this uh, kind of clandestine group who takes matters into their own hands to force via via fear basically some of the changes that happen and that's you know we know there are um, eco terrorists we know there are eco fascists out there we know that these kind of things exist but this is a new uh, um, it's different it was like these people are moving to deal with the climate crisis. Um, by specifically targeting the villains, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, it's definitely a novel approach to storytelling and um, problem solving, <laughs> right? It's like, right, let, right. <laughs> let a clandestine, uh, you know, shadowy group of, of terrorists, um, you know, force a hand, so to speak. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 really... It's really interesting to think about, and not necessarily in an exciting way, because who wants to think that that's our only uh, hope, right? Is that some shadowy group that we, we don't even know is there is going to, to potentially um, become very violent. Um, you know, but what I think that that does point to, though, is just how complicated 
um, climate policy that's that's done in the light where we can all see it, just how complicated it really is. Um, because it is a worldwide problem. And it's, you know, like if, if the United States stopped all of its carbon emissions today, right, climate change still isn't going to just magically stop. Um, you know, I mean, that we have, you know, positive feedback loops aside, like the physics, actual physics of climate change aside, which are already happening on the planet, we have all of these other countries on Earth that are still putting carbon into the air. And then we also look into the future where, you know, countries who maybe haven't um, become developed by using fossil fuels right now might in the next, you know, 20, 30, 50 years. So that's that's going to to also be something to consider. And so, I mean, what is the answer, right? I mean, how do we get every leader on Earth to come together and just make the decision <laughs> to just stop using fossil fuels? I mean, that's 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 an impossible question to answer. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, Robinson's approach was to say, well, actually, here's when I think about it, you know, in fictional form, here's one solution. And it's, it's a very scary solution. Um, and I'm going to be very curious to see what other solutions fiction writers can come up with. Um, you know, I mean, that that's their superpower, right? Is imagining exactly. solutions to problems. Right, right, exactly. And which makes me think of the, um, I think it's Arizona State University has the, um, um, they, they have a whole program around imagining solutions uh, um, to the climate crisis and to um, different aspects of the climate crisis through fiction. And in the past, I think, I think it was called, um, uh, maybe it was called The Power of the Sun or something like that, where they, they, they actually created these teams of a fiction writer and some scientists and engineers and presented each of them with a problem. And then they developed a story that had um, you know, science-based, engineering-based solutions to those problems, but presented in a fiction form. Yeah, it's a very, it's very, very cool. I mean, what you know, Arizona State University is doing is very, very cool. Um, you know, that's also a project, a similar project was done between McSweeney's and the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Um, they put out a whole volume of stories that were written by fiction writers who were paired with um, climate experts. And what is so interesting about those stories, um, you know, particularly I'm thinking of the McSweeney's book that, that, uh, that was created with the NRDC, um, most of those writers have never written about climate change directly before. And so what they came up with was, you know, devoid of a lot of the tropes that we're already starting to see in climate fiction. Um, you know, they, they avoided a lot of it, and it became this very fresh take on how you can write about climate change in fiction. And so I, my goodness, I mean, what an exciting model, right, to pair fiction writers with scientists. And I, I would love to see other groups attempt it. Absolutely. And for anybody who's interested in the book that I was mentioning, it's called The Weight of Light. And that's out of Arizona State University. And I, I found it really interesting. And what was the one that you, you mentioned? I, I, I'd seen it, but I haven't read it. Yeah, it's a McSweeney's issue. Um, I think it's called something like AD 2040 or 2040 AD. Um, it was the McSweeney's issue that came out in December 2020. 
Okay. I'll link to both of those um, in our show notes and on SoundCloud. So, you know, I know we were talking about genres and just the, the weirdness around that earlier, but, but in terms of these kind of optimistic and solutions-oriented stuff, do you feel that uh, climate fiction is... Um, or, or what's the relationship, I guess, between climate fiction and solar punk? Well, solar punk is um, another genre that addresses climate change. I haven't delved too deeply into it. Um, and not for any other reason other than I will be fully, completely honest, the few examples that I read just didn't interest me. But um, but that's that's a very personal, subjective thing. And I think that and you know, all of your readers should at least give it a shot and, and try it because you don't know if you're going to like it until you try it. But my understanding is that solar punk, it's a, the, 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 the title solar punk is kind of a twist on steampunk, you know, steampunk mm-hmm. of course being usually said in the 19th century and imagining if the world had taken a different technological path and so solar punk is kind of like that. It's like, what if the world had taken kind of a different um, technological path towards greener energy instead of fossil fuels? And my understanding is also that it's usually written in the key of optimism, that it's a more, it's a sunnier, happier um, response to climate fiction, which has largely been written in the dystopian mode. Um, I would agree with your assessment. I've actually kind of delved into quite a bit of solar punk um, the past two years. For one, because I, you know, I had that struggle with my own writing of like, God, I don't want to be too depressing and I want to be solutions oriented. But, you know, here's a question I have for you as, as, as um, as someone who really studies literature in depth is, you know, the thing I find challenging about solar punk is that it's maybe there's a lack of challenge or something. I'm not quite sure how to put my finger on it, but I find the, the ideas within solar punk to be very compelling, inspiring, um, and potentially useful. But a lot of times there's either no story or the story is so weak that I can't really grasp it. I can't get into it. Um, and my question, I think, for you is, is why is it potentially more difficult to tell a, <laughs> a, a positive story or a solutions-oriented story um, than, than it is, uh, say, a dystopian story? Oh, I mean, that's such an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure that it is more difficult to tell a positive story because who many of the books that we just mentioned, you know, A Children's Bible, A Ministry for the Future, New York 2140, um, I could throw more out, Amitaskosh's Gun Island. I think all of these um, end with a note of optimism, um, some of them on a very you know, loud ringing note <laughs> of optimism. And I don't think anybody would call that solar punk. I, I think the thing with solar punk is, is what distinguishes it is not just that it's a more optimistic way of telling stories. I think it's also really categorized by an aesthetic, right? It's like steampunk is an aesthetic. You can walk into you know one of those pop-up Halloween costume stores in October and buy a steampunk costume, 
right? Every when they see steampunk, you know, things come to mind, right? Kind of gothic looking, nineteenth century, but with lots of gears and watches, and you know, like this very. It's a very distinct aesthetic, and I think solar punk. And again, I could be misrepresenting it because I don't read it that often, but I think it's trying to achieve its own aesthetic using the idea of green energy. And that's, that's, that is really captivating for a lot of people. It's just not my thing because it sounds like, like you, I really value um, complex storytelling and, you know, character development over a certain prescribed aesthetic. But I mean, maybe I'm not giving Steam or a solar punk a fair shot here. <laughs> That's also very possible. Yeah, but actually what you're saying, what you're saying, though, makes a lot of sense to me. And it's, I, yeah, and I really appreciate that answer, because it's, um, um, I think you're right, it's, it's not so much the, um, the, the story and the characters as it is an attempt to obtain a, an, a, feeling, a feeling and an aesthetic. Um, and maybe that's why so many of those stories ring so hollow to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, I mean at the end of the day, it sounds like it's just not your thing, just kind of like it's just not my thing. You know, and that said, I, I, you, know, I, um, you know, I don't want to just be blindly applauding anybody who attempts a writing project, though, heck, after a year like 2020, if you can, more power to you. <laughs> yeah, right. Really. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, but you know, I mean, I, 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 you know, I also think there is something to be said for trying to create a new aesthetic that's rooted in green energy. I think that's really cool. And you know, I think as that genre starts to evolve, there's a good chance we're going to start seeing things that might appeal to a, a wider audience. So I don't know. I mean, you're, you're kind of inspiring me to check it out again and to see what developments have been made in the last couple of years. Yeah. And I've been definitely challenging myself as a writer to, to dive into that. Um, and I have not come up with anything that I find successful or that I like, but I think it's, you know, it's a great challenge for a writer to take on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So just a little bit going, kind of stepping back, you know, into climate fiction and its, and its impact on society and the world. I, I think one of the other things that I, I really process in my brain a lot and really try to figure out is like, you know, what is the power of narrative um, and story over data? Um, like, you know, there's all kinds of nonfiction climate change books out there that are brilliantly written and um, are really important uh, things for people to read. And yet we do kind of run into this where, man, um, you can give people all the data you want um, and all the reality you want, but that doesn't necessarily influence behavior as we've seen. Um, we've been warning about climate change for 30, 40 years or more. Um, how does a story help us kind of fill in that cognitive gap between, um, between what's actually happening and the data? Well, let's let's go back to Aristotle for a moment. I'm going to get real geeky here on you. All right, do <laughs> and, it. I and love your it. readers. I love it. You know, um, you know, kind of the, a a, Greek, a a very old ancient Greek theory of persuasion is that, you know, you persuade people through three modes, right? Ethos, pathos, and logos. And it, what so many scientific studies do because it's 
literally their raison d'etre. It's their reason to exist, right? Is to provide statistics and logical models for why climate change is happening and to predict as best as science can what it's going to do to the planet. And when it's presented in, you know, the, in the form of statistics and graphs and numbers and charts, then that, if, if we want to think of it in terms of persuasion, then that appeals to people through the Greek theory of logos, through logic to their head. And people who are really moved by numbers, they're going to be moved by that. But the thing is, is that most human beings um, aren't necessarily moved by that alone. I'm somebody who loves numbers. I love them. I'm one of those rare English majors that loves math. Like, I love numbers. <laughs> but if you look at, if you just give me a bunch of charts, I am probably am not going to be as persuaded by that than if you persuade me through one of Aristotle's other theories, which is through the notion of pathos. Pathos means emotion, right? And emotion, as almost any advertising person will tell you, is the most persuasive tool a person has. It's why when we watch television and, um, you know, uh, the commercials for the, you know, the animal adoption you know, uh, places come up and we just see these images of these sad dogs and cats and it's playing over, you know, Sarah McLaughlin's angel, right? right. It's like, <laughs> I have to pause it and turn it off because it just breaks my heart, right? And so that's an example of pathos. That is such a powerful, persuasive tool. And that's what storytelling is so good at because you get wrapped up, you get emotionally attached to the people and the places that a novel depicts for you. And you're and when a novel's written really well, right, then you've spent literally hours with this character kind of walking in their shoes, going through their lives, living inside their head, experiencing and feeling what they're going through, that you know, you can't help but want to cheer them on and hope that you know, everything ends well for them. I'm speaking in very broad terms here, but that's that's what a story does. It just gives it an emotional human element to the story of climate change. Um, and it's for so long as what's been missing, I think, from the public discourse. You know, climate change has always been talked about in terms of numbers and uh, statistics. And once we start linking that to how it actually impacts human beings and the animals and plants and places we love, then it starts to have this persuasive emotional impact that's incredibly powerful. Yeah, that's that, that makes a lot of sense. And and in that in in that sense, as you as you mentioned earlier, you know, as it starts to uh, kind of spread out in different areas of our society. That's where it's happening. That's where people, a lot of people are just simply encountering climate change through arts. Yeah, well, that they know of. <laughs> that they know of, exactly, right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. No, that, that's exactly it. And, you know, especially for places, you know, even in the United States where, you know, yeah, in the last few years, we have seen, you know, the West wildfire seasons turn into year-round events, right? We've seen hurricanes strengthened by climate change just ravage the Gulf Coast. We've seen droughts, you know, there where you are in the in the Southwest and in my home, you know, the breadbasket, the Midwest in the United States. 
Um, you know, up the northern uh, Midwest, the Great Lakes are changing because of climate change. Um, you know, everybody is experiencing this, but you know, we we still, <laughs> in, especially in the news, the stories that come out are those that have the most spe- the most spectacle. And so, if you're not, I'm in thinking the, of Texas right now. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, we're thinking of Texas, or you know, it, we're just thinking of people who are losing their homes to flooding, or um, to fire. You know, that's those are the stories that people associate with climate change, and not these smaller, more incremental changes that um, we don't necessarily notice because we're not in immediate danger because of them. And when we think of places, you know, like we're we're a week on now from this, um, the electrical and power grid in Texas collapsed, tens of millions of people's without energy, so on and so forth. So, you know, incidents like that and flooding that you mentioned, you know, there really becomes this issue of environmental justice and the inequitable impact of climate change. And and I think that's one of the one of the themes that I find in um, climate fiction is that there's there's really this this and you mentioned it earlier there's kind of this um sense that that to 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 overcome this this um huge problem that face faces us there has to be more justice there has to be more um diversity of ways of being um you know we like i think in in some of these um Books like, for example, Ministry for the Future, the main, one of the main characters is a very powerful Irish woman. Um, we see more people of color and, and other characters that actually have agency. They're not just tokens, but they actually have energy. And, um, and so to go back to something you mentioned earlier, can we solve the climate crisis, in your uh, opinion, without justice? No, <laughs> not at all. There's no way we can solve climate change without without justice. I mean, if you think about it, climate change only exists because humanity has collectively agreed, or at least the most powerful people have collectively agreed, that there are places on Earth that we are willing to destroy. <laughs> and isn't it interesting that the places we willing uh, we are willing to destroy are the ones where communities of people of color and the global poor live and work? And so that's an enormous problem. Environmental justice, climate justice, racial justice, they are deeply entwined and they cannot be taken apart. And to my mind, you know, fictional depictions of climate change actually haven't done a great job of making that clear. Um, You know, we're, we're maybe starting to see a little bit more movement in that area. I'm going to come back again to Amitav Ghosh's Gun Island. Um, you know, uh, uh, Ghosh is himself, um, you know, from Bangladesh. He, li- he puts his time, I think, between there and Brooklyn in New York. And his protagonist in that novel is um, of similar descent and, uh, you know, travels the world, including through India and, um, you know, and through Bangladesh uh, to see firsthand how climate change has affected, you know, some of the most impoverished people on the planet. And, you know, again, I don't want to give too much away because I want people to actually read this novel. But, you know, it also ties together how climate change is creating a refugee crisis. And the novel is very honest about that. 
um, but also optimistic about how we might um, not solve it, but just become more empathetic. We, meaning like rich, rich, you know, white nations, predominantly white nations, um, become more empathetic to to climate refugees. And um, yeah, but that but that novel kind of stands not alone, but it's in a very very small group because you know climate fiction is largely been a western phenomenon it's been largely a white phenomenon and until recently it's you know really been written by men and so it's not until we start getting more diverse voices that the stories themselves have become more diverse and so kind of like the trend of more optimism and collective action depicted in climate fiction i'm predicting and i'm hoping that we're also going to see a trend of more diverse storytelling and authors really making that link between climate and racial justice clear and that book is gun island by amitav ghosh um and I'll link to that in the in the show notes also. Um, yeah, right. So th- that my next question was really like, are we going to see a trend in um, more stories from around the world, from different perspectives? Like, is 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 climate fiction catching on worldwide? I'm, I'm thinking one of the books that I just picked up that I haven't read yet is Bangkok Wakes to Rain. Um, I haven't read it yet, but uh, I'm thinking of that. So is, is that kind of representative of where, where we might be going? I hope so. That book is beautiful. It's, you know, um, it's by Pichaya Sidbandad, who is a great, great writer. I, I believe that was his debut novel, which is kind of astonishing because, you know, it just reads by, like, it's been written by somebody who, you know, has written a dozen novels. It's um, really accomplished, and it's vivid, and it's fascinating, and it also tells the story of Bangkok in Thailand and how it is being transformed by climate change um, now and well into the future. And so, yeah, I mean, I hope that that is a trend. Um, But, you know, I I will say, though, that the lack of diversity in climate fiction is just a part of a much larger problem of publishing in general, you know, at least here in the United States. It's, you know, we we have a real diversity crisis. And, um, you know, I... I like to think that it's changing, but it's changing pretty slowly. (laughs) Hi, this is Christina Ortez, Executive Director of the Taos Land Trust. For 30 years, we've been keeping working lands in working hands. To do that, we need your help. Please donate at tauslandtrust.org slash donate. Thank you. Just I want to switch gears here just a little bit and go back to Burning Worlds. That started off as a column, and it's it's a, a newsletter that shows up in my email box now. Just tell us where did Burning Worlds come from? What um, um, you know? What's the idea behind it, and how has has your work evolved with that? So, Burning Worlds began as a column in 2017 at the Chicago Review of Books, and it. Every month, I interview a writer who has published a work of climate fiction, and we talk about their book. And um, you know, to the extent that they're w- they're willing to talk to me about it, 
you know, climate fiction more generally and their own views of climate change. It came about um, largely because of, as I was saying earlier, that I've always cared about the environment. I've cared about climate change, um, about the humanitarian crises that climate change creates. It's not just an environmental crisis. But I also have always been interested in how novels can reflect the times in which they are created and maybe even have some kind of power to move readers to action. And, you know, I I have an academic background. I have a PhD in literature, and I know that some of those questions have been explored in academic contexts for a long time. But in 2017, I was looking around at the, you know, kind of the more public um, presses, the more popular presses, and I didn't see a space where anybody was asking those questions in a sustained way. And so I launched the column and decided, well, I'll just ask those questions. I don't have any answers, but I want to know <laughs> what what types of I books- got lots of questions. Yeah, I got lots of questions about climate change and literature. And, you know, the column, much to my surprise, really caught on. It became very popular. And, um, you know, over the course of the, gosh, what is it, four, almost going on five years now that I've been writing that column, um, you know, things have really, really changed. There are a lot more books about climate change being published, a lot more novels specifically being published about climate change. But also, when I first started asking writers about the themes of climate change in their novels, they were saying things like, oh, wow, thank you for noticing that. You know, I didn't even really think that was something people noticed because nobody asked me about it. And then three years later, you know, I'll see those same writers at a conference, at a panel with two other writers talking specifically about climate change in books. It's like the conversation has just exploded. And it's so exciting to see that and to, um, you know, to try to capture kind of the history of that evolution in that column. Um, But the other interesting thing, though, that happened is that I started hearing from a lot of readers and also just artists of all kinds who said, well, if you're interested in this, would you also be interested in how theater is responding to climate change or painters or, you know, um, sculpture artists or musicians? And I was like, yes, (laughs) I am very interested in this. And so I launched a year after uh, the column, so this must have been 2018, I launched the Burning Worlds newsletter, which every month I include uh, an interview with a, a writer or an artist of another kind who is also exploring climate change in their work. And, um, you know, I've really over the years created this, um, I'd like to think, valuable archive of conversations with creatives who have found some really innovative ways to explore climate change through all different types of mediums. Yeah, and I have found I have found the column both super valuable when it just comes to my my inbox, my email inbox, but also going back and seeing and reviewing what you have who you've interviewed before and how you've gone about that. I find to, it is a valuable archive. Yeah, absolutely. It, um, just among other artists, be it be it theater or or um, photography or sculpture, have you noticed any any themes in particular or um, or consistent storylines, I guess, in how uh, different different art forms are approaching the climate crisis. Mm. Oh, that's so interesting to think of themes across mediums. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I will say that outside the realm of literature, 
other artists have been doing, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love books. They are my first love and always will be. But I think that other mediums are actually doing a bit of a better job of telling more diverse stories or trying oh, wow. to express more diverse experiences. Um, so that has been really interesting to see. Um, but And I also, and I'm thinking specifically of Peggy Will, or Wiles' work, um, there are others, too, who are telling stories that are really ancient and i and i she's not a she's not a, a writer so when i say story i'm using that term broadly um though when i look at her work i do see a narrative um she is a an artist who um has photographs of antarctic ice cores i'm thinking of her installation 88 oh, cores right. do you, are you familiar mm-hmm. with this work uh, yes i am yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, for any readers or for any listeners who may not know, she took pictures of Antarctic ice cores. And an ice core is basically a tube of ice that scientists have taken from, you know, the Antarctic continent. And when you look at it, it's, it's you know, they're several feet deep. And when you look at it, the deeper that you go, the, um, the older the ice is. And so she has pictures of ice cores um, that are a thousand plus years old and then ones that are just a few years old and puts them all up, uh, you know, on a wall so that you can kind of see the evolution of ice from a thousand years ago to now. And what you notice is just how frail and brittle the ice is becoming. And it really drives wow. home, you know, just the, the transformative effect that climate change has had on that continent. And I found it to be a very, very moving experience to stand in front of those cores and let it tell its story of of Antarctica. Yeah, that's fascinating. Since we do need to wrap up, I kind of want to just come back to House of Fire or House on Fire, sorry. And um, so that is House on Fire is your dispatches from a climate change world and that's going to come out in 2022. Just a just a quick description of that and and what you're up to next. I mean, I you know I I'm an avid follower of yours on Twitter, so there's a lot of cat pictures, but then there's also these <laughs> there's also these mentions of um, of ice and New York City. So I'm kind of curious, like about both about this forthcoming book, but then also what you're up to next. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll talk about House on Fire first. Um, House on Fire is uh, a book that um, I I kind of got the the idea for a couple of years ago, I wanted to bring together stories, uh, true stories, personal essays about what it's like to live right now um, in an age of accelerated climate change. Because, you know, climate change is the, the most visible effects of it have really happened in the last 30 years. They're all encompassed within yeah. my lifetime. When I was born, we were still living on a relatively stable, you know, planet. A climate stable planet. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, we're one of the first and the last generations to remember what life was like before. Right. And so what is that experience like? And so, um, you know, I reached out to several writers that I know, and they were all very excited about this idea. And so once I knew that it was going to be a project, um, I asked a friend of mine who's a brilliant editor, Kaja Eason, 
to join me as a co-editor. And together, we solicited essays, personal essays, by some of our favorite writers, uh, including some folks we've mentioned today, um, Kim Stanley Robinson, Lydia Millett, Kachaya Sidbenbad, and many, many others, um, to write about their stories. And that collection is going to come out in, I believe, June of 2022. It got pushed back because of COVID. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's a, a book that I can't wait to see make its way into the world because it's very powerful and it's wide ranging. Um, and it was written and edited largely during COVID. And it was fascinating, mm. fascinating to see the parallels that these writers were drawing between, you know, the, the upending, the world upending, you know, aspects of climate change connected to the world upending aspects of COVID. It's, it's really an incredible book. And I, like I said, I, I can't wait to see it in the world. Tell me about ICE in New York City. I have taken it upon myself to start a new research project. Um, it might be a book someday, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to jinx it by saying that right now. But, um, you know, I, you know, I'm somebody who thinks a lot about you know, the elements, how can you not when you think about climate change? (laughs) And you know, I've always been curious about is why, why I like drinking ice in my water and in my, my iced tea. And, you know, I, I asked that of myself because if you travel to other places around the, you know, around the world, that is not a standard way to serve a drink. Right? right, a lot of places around the world just don't drink ice in their drinks. Don't put ice in their drinks, and so then I got to thinking, well, what, where, where else do we rely on ice in our, you know, in our, in our society? And the more I look at it, the more I realize that it's ice is kind of this invisible driver of so many things that we just don't, we just take for granted you know, in the United States, it, um, you know, it really kind of jump-started one of the first gig economies <laughs> in the United States when, you know, um, boutique uh, ice makers started creating ice in their basements in New York City because uh, up until that point, you know, we, we drank ice that was harvested from, from lakes and rivers. You know, we didn't have ice machines. Oh, um, you know, and then once that happened, then we started seeing ice being used more in hospitals and incorporated into medical technologies. Um, you know, we've started, how, how, I'm sorry to, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm really curious, like how did people start making ice in their basements? Well, they, they incorporated or they built, um, you know, these little ice machines that are basically air compressors in a tub is really kind of what it, what it uh, is wow. based on. Um, you know, they're built, uh, modeled on a prototype that was created by, um, a little known doctor named John Gorey, uh, who, lived in Florida uh, just prior to the Civil War. You know, he invented the first ice machine and um, never really got credit for it. He was actually, uh, his reputation was destroyed in his own lifetime because, you know, in the 1940s, or excuse me, the 1840s and the 1850s, you know, ice was considered to be God's domain. (laughs) You know, ice, God made ice, not man. And so here he came, you know, to you know, to churches and other community groups and said, look, I'm going to make ice for you in July in Florida. And they're like, you know, devil be gone. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it really wasn't until, you know, European inventors discovered his patents, recreated the prototype and sold it back to the United States that mechanical ice became a thing here in the United States. And it just completely transformed everything. 
No, no, most people don't. And, you know, it had transformed, you know, our, again, our medicine, the way we we preserve food, the way we, we prepare food, um, it, it led to, uh, to air conditioning. I mean, it just completely changed our, our way of life. And it also had this incredible econ- economic drive behind it at every you know, step of the way. And beyond that, the people be- behind you know, creating ice or you know, Frederick Tudor, the person who launched the original natural ice trade in the United States, they are fascinating characters and nobody has really kind of told this story and so i'm just trying to to figure it out and you know kind of coming back to the theme of climate change what i've noticed is that you know it wasn't just mechanical ice that did away with the natural ice trade right ice being harvested from lakes and rivers it was also because the mid-19th century uh was the end of the little ice age Right, which was the mm-hmm. centuries natural period of cooling that the earth had undergone. And ice just didn't lakes and rivers just didn't freeze to the depths that they did back then. And so natural ice was literally becoming impossible to harvest. And so the climactic changes kind of led to the development of mechanical ice. And now here we are in the twenty first century. Here's another ice fact for you. Um Half of all refrigerators in the United States have automatic ice makers in them. And because we are now so dependent and reliant on ice. And those refrigerators produce up to 30 times more um, energy and carbon pollution than a refrigerator without. And so we're kind of back into this climactic story of, you know, mechanical ice being created because of a climactic change. And now we're at a moment where we really need to decide, are we still going to keep it because it's changing the planet's climate once again? So that is right. my and very actually, long story. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, because also there's the, you know, it's, it's like a, the feedback loop, right? Is that as it gets warmer, we want more ice, but then, so by making more ice, we're making it warmer. That's, that's and, exactly it. A very, a very succinct <laughs> way of yeah, saying what yeah. I just said. Well, this could be a whole other conversation because you, you sparked a thought in me about air conditioners in Southern Arizona and um, the spread of, of tracked homes and, and all that. But I think we'll have to leave that for another time. <laughs> well, when you want to have that conversation, I'll be ready. Okay, that sounds good. Um, So we've been talking with Dr. Amy Brady. Um, She is the deputy publisher of Guernica Magazine and the editor-in-chief of the Chicago Review of Books. And she publishes the monthly column Burning Worlds, which is focused on uh, climate fiction and uh, climate literature, as well as arts, um, uh, how the the intersection of arts and climate. So... um, Um, Amy, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for inviting me to talk with you, Jim. I've had a lot of fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed it a lot too. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell, edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.taoslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.